1: Carol is the executive director of the National Council on Aging and serves as the uh, well, chair, board chair of the National Council on Aging. I'll get it right. And executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Uh, what I was doing was thinking on a separate track with the Republican National Convention now over and the Democratic National Convention about to end. Does the National Council on Aging send folks as experts uh, to participate in any of the platform hearings at these conventions?
2: Um, not to the conventions, no, but uh, once this new Congress is seated and a new president is seated, they will be very busy, um, you know, with a legislative agenda already uh, ready to go for all the new new elected officials. That
1: makes a lot of sense.
2: Well, you, you've got to plan ahead because, uh, the, especially with the new administration, those first what is it, 100, 100, days. 100 days is when things really roll.
1: And that'll be interesting. Maybe we can talk about that down the road, what that legislative agenda may look like. But before we get to our very special guest, and we have had her on before, we're going to be talking about caregiver uh, voice with Brenda Vadian, uh, Caregiving Tips. But I want to ask you a question that comes out of something that you picked up, millennials. What in the world is, they, is it that they wish their baby boomer parents would tell them? Well, don't buy Enron stock. Don't buy
2: Enron stock. So this comes from our friend Richard Eisenberg, who has been on the show. He's a uh, money and work editor. He's written for Forbes. Um, I see him at aging conferences taking notes and interviewing folks. And we'll have to have him back on the show to specifically talk about this study because it was so enlightening. What what they did is um, there was a study where um, they sat down with older persons, um, and I to, let me look and see, let me see what this definition was. It was, at, well, it's per its parents. They sat down with um, almost 1,300 parents, age 55 plus, and then they talked to 221 adult children, and they were talking to them, uh, you know, about money and caregiving and who's going to take care of who. So, Consider these findings, Richard says. Ninety-three percent of parents uh, felt it would be unacceptable to become financially dependent on their children, but only 30 percent of the kids felt that way. Oh, really? Which is kind of interesting. Of course, those kids don't have any money. Um, Ninety-two percent of the parents expect one of their children to be the executor of their estate, but only 20 percent of the kids identified as filling this role knew about it. So all the parents are thinking, oh, my! Well, this child is going to be the executor." And the kids didn't know it. Big surprise. Uh, 69% of parents expect one of their kids to help manage their investments and finances when they get a little bit too old. But only 36% of children had any idea that was the expectation on them. Uh, 43% of parents had not had detailed conversations with family members about long-term care. Um, and another 23% haven't had any conversations at all uh so there's a there 's a big disconnect between what the parents are thinking is going to happen and what the children think is going to it's happen because they don 't talk well they don 't talk um, you know the good news that came out of the article is that it looks like uh the light is going off on saving for retirement there's a you know there are more people that are putting money away um, but what they' really what Richard was talking about was trying to identify why these conversations aren 't going on, and it has to do with you know something that uh you know, my parents were big on, they don't want to talk money with their children. They don't want to reveal, you know, their assets. And that's perfectly understandable. And you don't have to, to have the conversation. The conversation that you need to have is um, talking about where your financial records are in case of an emergency. Um, How do you get your hands on them if they're in a lockbox behind a key and someone needs to get it? Um, Who is your financial advisor and can help them... Find out where all of these financial accounts are. Um, it's just kind of the basics that we have spoken about um, multiple times, especially when we have attorneys on the show
1: and getting the appropriate documents that give you access. You know,
2: get, getting those access documents because you know you you can be fairly confident that the bank, just because you look like your mom or dad, they're not going to give you access to a lockbox. No, uh, just because you have a driver's license and your kin.
1: That's where you hire Tom Cruise and you have to break in in the middle of the night.
2: That's right. That's The entire Mission Impossible team actually grew out of someone needing people to break into their parent's safety deposit box. (laughs) I think that's probably true.
1: All right, millennials, (laughs) talk to your parents. And
2: parents, talk to your kids. And vice
1: versa. And we're going to talk with Brenda Badian in just a couple of moments about caregiving and tips on caregiving. Uh, Before we do that, another topic, prescription drugs. And this is a scary one, medical Errors.
2: Well, this was an op ed piece by Laura Wright that, you know, really hit me hard because recently um, Johns Hopkins let out a report about uh, medical errors and deaths in the United States. Medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States, right behind cancer and heart disease. That's a huge number. So if heart disease and cancer don't kill you, medical errors will. A friend of ours, Sharon's her name, she has a
1: son who is a wounded warrior, has lots of medical needs. He was going on a trip, got his prescription filled at a local pharmacy before he went. Uh, he got home after the pharmacy was long closed. He looked at it, wrong medication.
2: Well, and, and, you know, this that's kind of a similar experience. So what she was talking about is, you know, her husband developed Parkinson's disease. And they were cruising along with their health plan. But the health plan changed the uh, delivery mechanisms instead of saying go to your local pharmacy, Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, whatever, and pick up the prescription. Now it has to be mail-ordered to you, which is going to save you all this money, except that they never told her that they were switching it. So they switched the, the you know, it had to come in the mail but she was already running out of pills for her husband. And so with Parkinson's disease, you have to build up to a certain level. Um, and people can actually go into serious withdrawal and even die if they don't take their Parkinson's medications on a regular basis. Cut them, cut them off all of a sudden. So she can't find out who's responsible, you know, how to get it filled, goes through all this anxiety. You know, at the last minute, uh, this first time, they did get prescription filled, you know, by overnight mail, Um, But then it happened again where they switched the mail order company, didn't tell her, and, you know, went through that whole thing again. And she talks about how she was spending, um, you know, an average of a week of her life just managing prescriptions. Um, And the whole point was is that she felt like that the health plans possibly, the insurance companies, the people on the other end of that phone were shrugging their shoulders going, oops, you're not going to get, you know, there's nothing we can do. You're going to have to wow. wait for it to show up. And it, there just wasn't that concern that my husband could die if he doesn't get this medication. Um, and and I know that my father is in a VA system where they have a different doctor every time. He's trying to get a prescription filled now, um, and but he doesn't have a doctor assigned to him because the doctor's always different every time he goes, and the last one didn't renew the prescription, and so there's no one can renew the prescription, but he doesn't have a doctor, and it's these vicious circles that patients get into and get really frustrated. So, um, you know, she's putting this in the class of medical error in that you have a, a healthcare system that says you need to take this prescription. It's going to save your life, um, but... Whether you get it or not is mm, Out of good our luck. Hands. Yeah, it's not really. It's somebody else's wow. problem.
1: You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernial, and we'll be talking with Brenda Vadian in just a couple of minutes. A third leading cause of death, prescription drug errors. Well, that's just it. medical errors, not prescription drugs, but just medical Huge errors. Huge number. So
2: that's why we say, um, you know, never leave your loved one in a hospital alone. Right, Um, and send somebody with the medical appointments, your doctor's appointments, because someone in the family needs to know what's going on and and keep their ears and eyes open.
1: Now, speaking of ears, sometimes seniors have trouble hearing. That is true. I, 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 I don't, to the best of my knowledge, but I must get an unsolicited mailer. Three or four times a week. Well, I knew from hearing aid companies. I
2: knew I had passed yet another birthday when I started getting mailers about hearing problems. Right. Um, you know, but it actually it's very prevalent. Forty five percent of people age, uh, over the age of seventy have hearing problems, and eighty percent over eighty five um, wow. have hearing problems. And I know I have a lot of people in my family that have hearing problems. I probably I'm the lucky one in the family. I've I have other problems we don't have to talk about on air, <laughs> but the hearing problem is not the one that I But you inherited. have information
1: on gizmos that'll help with hearing.
2: Well, so this is the thing. Um, why don't people wear hearing aids more often? Uh, because we have such prominent, you know, hearing loss all over, prevalent hearing loss all over the country. A, they're very expensive. You know, we're talking thousands of dollars, not covered by Medicare. Um, there's, Which stigma. Is there's stigma. There's um, stigma. And in case you didn't know it, hearing loss is the worst of all sensory losses because it causes paranoia. It can cause depression. It causes social isolation. People understand vision loss. They can't see hearing loss. And so you're just annoying them when you ask for the third time, what did you say? Or you stop everybody at every During the conversation, multiple times, what were you saying? What were you like? So it's very bad psychologically. In case you didn't know, it's very bad. Um, But people don't use hearing aids. The good news is, is now there are these gizmos. You can get apps for your phone. You can get little devices. If you look in the backs of magazines, um, that will help amplify sound. And I have some relatives that use them, Uh, and and that's a really great thing. The bad thing is currently they're not regulated by the FDA. So if you don't want the Federal Drug Administration to approve your device, it means you can get it to market faster. But it also means there's no quality control and so if you spend $70 on this product versus $70 on that product, one could be total dog food. Right. Um, and the other one could work very well. There's no way for you to know.
1: Because hearing aids just amplify.
2: Well, hearing aids amplify. And hearing aids are problematic in that they don't work well in a, in a crowded, noisy environment. Anyone with a hearing aid, you'll see them turn it off in a restaurant because the clanking of the dishes and the silverware just gets amplified, and that's not helping them hear the conversation more.
1: That explains my dad's father, Grandpa Max, at dinners, holidays. We'd go for a, a, a Passover dinner, and every once in a while you hear my grandma say, Max, turn your hearing
2: aid on! <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, during the dessert course when it gets a little quieter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so you know what we want people to know is that, yes, there, there are some really good apps out there, um, but maybe if the FDA could get involved in terms of approving those that are proven to be effective and put some sort of seal or approval. We need some kind of halfway mark uh, because, you know, you can get – Maybe not hundred percent of your hearing back, but eighty five percent would probably be good enough for most people with hearing loss.
1: And the big challenge, many will tell you, is in a crowded room.
2: Well, it, you know, trying it isn't. to
1: pick up conversations,
2: right? So, um, you know, just just a heads up for you to know that there are some gadgets out there. If you have got hearing loss is one of the problems you're dealing with, uh, but read online, get reviews. Don't just buy the one on the back of the magazine because it actually might not work.
1: We got to jump to Brenda Avadian, but here's a short one. This is yes or no. no. Do colds get caused by cold?
2: No, cold weather does not cause colds.
1: This just in. We'll talk more about it another day. This is Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zernio, we'll talk with Brenda Vadian in just a moment on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio?
1: Well, we're delighted you're with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And as we promised, we are now joined once again by Brenda Avadian. She's the caregiver's voice. We had her on several months ago last October, and we're delighted to have her back again. And one of the topics she threw out, Carol, that I find extremely interesting, it is uh, caregivers do a lot of things in caring for a care recipient. But one of the topics that Brenda thought of is helping mom and dad downsize all that stuff. stuff
2: the stuff and we all know how difficult the stuff is so yeah Brenda uh, Brenda tell us tell us about yeah, Thank you, you Thank you for coming on Yeah and tell us about the stuff and what we need to know
4: My pleasure Ron and Carol thank you for having me sure. on again Yes it's all about the stuff and you know <laughs> I just say it's it's dealing with all the other stuff of caregiving that drives caregivers to dementia. And it has nothing to do sometimes with hands-on caregiving. Rather, it's all that other stuff that, uh, you know, hands-on caregiving is challenging enough, but having to deal with these legal, financial, medical matters, and then in my case, and I know other caregivers have dealt with this too, forty-five years of accumulated possessions in my father's home,
2: which is, you know, I mean, yeah, for that's a daunting thought. Forty-five <laughs> years of of things, and it's no
4: small home. Uh, so, if you think about those dumpster things that the commercial uh, com- commercial entities use, which are um, like you can drive in, or you could even live in it. You could subdivide it and live in it. You could sublet it. Carol, uh, <laughs> <attempts>. <laughs> uh, there was that much stuff—three of those to get rid of. And, well, how did you know what and, to get?
1: How did you know what to get rid of and what to keep?
4: Well, that goes in an area that I'd feel a little uncomfortable with, but I think it's helpful to address, Ron, and that is that when. The siblings or the heirs, uh, because my father was now living in our home when we were clearing out his home, for us to try to do that while he was there living with dementia would have been too traumatic. So once he was living with us, we went back and tried to clear it out. But my brother, sister, and I were not getting along quite well. And it was one of these things like, I say, I want this, then all of a sudden, one of the others might want it, too, just because I wanted it, you know, that kind of contention that families deal with. So we unfortunately got rid of more things than I felt comfortable with because it was that contentious type issue. So when siblings don't get along or heirs don't get along, the whole family suffers. And that was a struggle. You know, it was a struggle in our family uh, because we were all thrown into this with uh needing to find a safe place for my father to live, and then what are you going to do with all their stuff?
1: Now, in your case, as I recall, your your mother had predeceased your dad. He develops dementia. You're providing uh, care for him. You're a hands-on caregiver, and then you needed to move him from your house into a facility?
4: Well, I was a long distance caregiver initially, if you could even call it that. I, I didn't see myself as that, so he was in the Midwest, and I'm in California, and uh, to try to go back and forth and monitor the care, we moved him into our home. Right. Um, <clears throat> so while we're doing that, you know, what do you do with this home now? I mean, it's his home. We need to do something about it right. so, to and clear it out.
2: And that's such a difficult time um, because even siblings and family members who normally get along, who don't seem to have any problems with each other, there is something about... You know, material possessions, whether it has sentimental value, whether it has uh, real financial value, uh, everybody has an opinion and feelings can get hurt and emotions can flare very easily.
4: And, And that's hard because the undercurrent, Carol, is that we're still caregiving, okay? We're still caregivers, Um, So you can't ignore, you can't just focus on the stuff because you still have the caregiving issues. You have the legal issues, the financial issues, the medical matters still that are ongoing as caregivers. And um, so I I don't want to focus right now just for the moment on this getting rid of this stuff. And I want to say, what is the reality for the caregiver during this struggle, during this time, during the emotions of what you implied with your comment when – siblings are disagreeing on who gets the sentimental things or the things of value so do and,
2: do all the siblings ahead. that do all this you know in, in a situation like you're talking about is does, do you think everyone considers themselves a caregiver do you think that all the family members are thinking that i'm i'm the caregiver that you're referring to that's dealing with all the emotions or is, or is that no. true
4: or do you think there's no, one primary th- and they
2: recognize no you're the primary caregiver
4: Well, I think it's somewhere in between because even if the person is a primary caregiver, the other family members think about the things. In my sibling's situation, they were caregiving for my mom when she was dealing with congestive heart failure. So they were tasked with racing her to the hospital each time when her lungs filled up with fluids. So they had that to deal with, which I did not have to deal with maybe but once. Uh, But to deal with that, to be an ambulance service for your mother, knowing she could be taking her last breath, because she refused ambulance service. And there are people that are like that. She would rather die than go through all the noise and everything at the ambulance service. Um, So they were tasked with that. So I, I think in some way they still saw themselves as caregivers, but not maybe of my father, but they felt you know they have some rights right but you know the point i guess i'm trying to say is this whole notion of this caregiver dementia where where the symptoms are very similar and we talked about this in the october uh call as well at caregiver sos but the notion is this caregiver dementia that the caregiver is so burdened with so many different things going on that oftentimes don't even deal with hands-on care that the caregiver starts showing these typical signs of dementia, which are, you know, forgetting one's place. Uh, You know, where am I? I remember driving on a familiar road that I'd taken frequently and all of a sudden just blanking on where I was, who I was, when I was, what I was, any of that sense of self and reality and context.
1: That had to scare you. It,
4: you it, It is very scary, Ron, because... You, I mean, you know, I mean, look at both of you. You're functioning, you're here as hosts for the caregiver SOS, and here, if you lose for just a moment that sense of presence, or my husband, who while I was on business travel sends me an email saying, they're taking my things, which is a familiar statement. That you know, Carol, as a gerontologist of a person who deals with dementia, is there taking my things, you know, that paranoid stage. Right. So, and, and, and
2: I remember you talked about this that when I first met you and you were speaking in Corpus Christi, you, you talked a, a little bit about, you know, this taking on some of the characteristics. It's like, it's like when the husband, you know, the wife is pregnant and the husband, you right. know, is having some <laughs> of those, um, you know, yes. maternity pains, you know, so to speak. <laughs> which is you know it which sometimes happen. happen which which sure. sometimes happens. Um, right. so so you're saying that you know right. sometimes caregivers and 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 probably I know uh, myself as a family caregiver of someone with Alzheimer's, you start, you know, you really worry about it all the time that you're becoming the parent that you're caring for. So I could see where it, it's yeah, not much further to to actually take that on. <laughs>
4: Well, that's a slightly different topic, becoming a parent for a parent's kind of thing, and that might be another show altogether. In fact, I was asked to write an article about that just recently for a national in-home care uh, provider, but, you know, that we, we're we trying to deal with stigmatic issues, you know, saying, you know, are we the parent to our parent? We're trying to change the verbiage. Well, let me ask you a with, question. We, uh,
1: yeah. if, you, if you feel as if you're having those kinds of problems, if you're yes. looking for... Uh, some kind of help, uh, part of what you do is consult with caregivers to direct them to services and supports within their communities. So someone talks to you right. know, and, and says, you know, Brenda, I'm, I'm really, I'm lost here. Some days I don't even know where I am. What do you tell them? Right. What do you tell well, them? Of course.
4: I mean, the first thing I tell them is, look, admitting it is the first thing, but you know what, you need to get some help. And when I say help, it's not so much like you need psychiatric care, but rather you need to ask for people to help you because just taking a break, getting a respite for just even a half day can make all the difference when a caregiver t- gets to that level, just not being able to worry and letting somebody else care for a loved one right, through in-home care services or even adult day services. Just getting a little bit of help so a caregiver can step away knowing a loved one is competently cared for um, will help the caregiver take steps to avoid this. And, and that's different for all the families. I mean, there's family members who do share the care. They're still the fi- primary caregiver. So, there was one family I remember, who one family member who was at one of my keynote addresses, and she said, "I'm one of 13 children, and we all share the care for mom." And that's wonderful. I mean, maybe not all 13. I think 11 of the 13 shared the care, but the other two helped in other ways. But to alternate care meant that every single one would uh, have enough time away from mom and come back refreshed to provide mom care.
1: But that's um, very and that's unusual. How they
4: did it. I mean that, thats Oh, of
1: course that is. Normally, what happens, as you know, is uh, if if there are siblings, one sibling uh, takes on that responsibility, right. and, and the others are happy to see them do it.
4: Uh, exactly, Rob. Right. Exactly, and that is the state. So that's why I, you know, I when I when I get calls from people and I talk with people or coach caregivers, what I learn is what their situation is, and then from there we look at what the community's resources are that they're in, and then we go and advise them accordingly, because each community has different resources. Some people who are living in far out rural places may not have access to adult day services, but they might find maybe an in-home caregiver who can come in and sit with a loved one for a few hours. Um, So there's just uh, every family situation is different and I try to take more of a customized approach. Uh, But I wanted to go off on that tangent briefly to just say that in the context of stuff and helping families downsize or deal with their stuff, we deal with these emotions and this exhaustion and these symptoms of dementia. We also experience it. Fortunately, it's one of the reversible forms of dementia. And that is once we take steps to get help or once we no longer are caregiving, then we find that we regain some composure and functioning in the normal world. All right,
1: hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. And remember, podcasts of all of our shows are available. Just go to
5: caregiversos.org.
1: Glad you're with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. And joining us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline is Brenda Avadian, the Caregiver's Voice. And we're going to give you uh, an email address, or rather a website address, where you can get more information on her services and how they work. And if, uh, well, it's the com. That's not hard to remember. Well, we were talking about... <laughs> We're t- it is easy. com. That was smart of you to reserve that. So so tell us, <laughs> as you take a look, Brenda, at, at back to where we began. Uh, and, and it's a pretty good issue for families to, to think about. Uh, you've got a loved one. You've got a mom. You've got a dad, uh, one or the other. And, and they need to move either into your house or another uh, relative's or into a residence. Uh, how do you downsize? What do you do with all that stuff? How do you sort it through, and can they play a role in that?
4: Uh, yes, and here are some ideas. And again, these are custom approaches. You know, there's a lot of popular decluttering books on the market today that tell you to take a weekend and put your things in these various boxes. Well, mom and dad, especially moms and dads like my mom and dad who... Spent 40-plus years saying yes, if you, Ron, told them, uh, would you like this, uh, the answer from my mother would always be yes. Yes, I'd like that, Ron. Thank you for giving that to me.
1: You met my and mother-in-law. Were... That's my mother-in-law. <laughs> Seriously.
2: Well, and, and a lot of these people are from the Depression era, right. and they save everything. Exactly.
1: Yes. Yeah.
4: Yes. Virginia, would and you like exactly this? True. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah exactly care and they save everything because of that so my parents had a lot of yeses and rarely a no okay and my parents even told me that too. they said just say yes you can say no later well they never said no later and i was responsible of them for cleaning up the nose um it's traumatic for them for people to come in and say mom can i help you with these things can i get rid of these things You you just don't want to do that with the greatest generation or maybe even the elder baby, baby boom generation, um, because we have a relationship with our stuff. You know, it took us time to accumulate it. We, we appreciate our stuff. It gives us comfort. It makes us familiar. So we have to deal with it with patience, which is something that we don't understand in society today. Because, you know, what I really need to come on this show and say, take this one pill and your stuff will be magically gone. And you don't have to deal with it. That's what we want in society. Yeah, Except where do we find that? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. so. do you, do you know, Carol, your co-host Ron is a wise one. You know yeah, that. Yeah, he. Okay. Well,
2: I, I've I've heard that expressed uh, similarly, but differently. Different verbiage. A little, di- <laughs> <With> different <laughs> words than that. <laughs>
4: different. Yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah, the I Yiddish would be smart did. Tuchus. <laughs> I like that his toughness is smart um but we have to be patient with mom and dad and we have to make them understand that they're in control about their stuff which means then we have to understand that we have to have patience to work with mom and dad and if we don't have the patience it's not going to happen if we don't have the time to be patient we might as well spend the money to hire a professional to help mom and dad, but if we want to do it ourselves and we can find the time, there are many rewards, and one of them I'll start with is the one I used when my father was still alive, because I would go back and I would visit him annually after my mother died, and I realized there was a lot of stuff in that house we needed to get rid of, so I would tell my dad, finally, and it just hit me. I thought, well, how can I get him to start unloading some of this? And I th- I told him, I said, you know, I, I'd i like to go through your file cabinets, which was, you know, a no-no, because that was the private sanctuary of my father's affairs. And I, being the youngest child, you know, what business do I have in there? But I, And he asked me, he said, why? He wouldn't even look at me, he just said, why? And I said, well, because you know, you're kind of getting on in years, and I could talk this way with him. I said, you're getting on in years, and, you know, when you die, I don't want to have to go through this and start having questions. And he said, die? Who said I'm dying? I said, well, you know, like we all die, and we're all going to die at some time, and, you know, if you continue this line of reason, I might die before you die, but just, you know, I think it'd be nice with you here to go through some of this, and if I have questions, we can talk about it. He said, go at it. So I opened up his file drawers, and I just started pulling out papers, and I found something that he had journaled from 1921. Wow. A brown booklet, you know, a composition book when he was taking English because he was an immigrant to the United States, and he was going to night school to take English to improve his language skills.
1: Where was he from?
4: Uh, Armenia. Wow, that sounds like an
2: interesting find.
4: Yeah, and so, well, it did. It showed about, you know, it talked about the genocide a little bit, you know, when his, it was the last time he saw his father Mm. and, you know, how his mom and he came across, you know, to America on a boat and how his mother got really seasick and he was running all around the boat and how they crossed through Ellis Island, and he was instructed to keep his mouth shut because there were certain things, you know, that immigrants had to say to, you know, not draw attention to themselves and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I I was just all goosebumpy, and I began to read it to him, and we began to talk. So if you have the time, you can have gifts like this with your family, and we eventually learned which boat he came across because he hadn't written that, and my husband would keep asking him, and he finally remembered and shared it, and we looked it up on the Ellis Island Registry, and sure enough, we found him and my grandmother. Uh, All right, so now, it, before like, before
1: we run out of time, if you were to do what you're describing, which is fascinating, but if you go through every piece of paper sitting in uh, your loved one's file cabinet, you would never clean anything out.
4: Be, you are right you'd
1: be There's, too busy talking about all those great stories, which is neat
4: what what ends up happening when you go through what it's I always tell people that I work with in, in dealing with their stuff is it starts out very slow and just like you said, Ron, it feels like it will take forever. But what happens is something takes hold, and I can't really explain what it is. You go through a few of these and you start getting that momentum going, and eventually the rest of the stuff clears out a lot faster. You realize, I don't need to spend all this time with each of these things. Here are the mementos I want to hold on to. I can't keep everything. So you spend a lot of time on the front end, which makes it feel impossible that you'll get through the task, But what you find when you do take that time, that everything starts up speed and you get through the rest of the process more quickly. You know, it's interesting. Go ahead. Yes. I was going to say, he feels in control that I'm not stepping in trying to decide what to do with his stuff. And he's happy. I'm happy because we're going through the things and then we move on. So go ahead, Ron.
1: I was going to say... People who build storage facilities understand that we all have too much stuff. And if you take a look, and I don't know where you live, but in cities I've lived in, wherever a new housing development goes in, uh, within months, a giant storage facility opens up because people move in and they have too much stuff. And so what do they do? They end up paying a monthly fee to store the stuff they never see.
2: Right. 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 Well, you know, your topic that, you know, is is very important. One of the advantages of doing what you're saying is that, you know, if the person still has capacity um, and can help, you know, Sort sort out what is it. And but you can also did you find that you had time to to talk about maybe who it might go to, um, I know when we went through the things with my grandmother before she moved into assisted living, you know, she, we labeled at the time, um, you know, I want, she, she made a decision that whoever gave her, you know, the a gift that that gift went back to them. And so we would go through the I house, like and that. she would tell us, you know, this came from, you know, my niece. This came from so-and-so. And we labeled everything. Uh, and that way, you know, there we we kind of had a road map that was very helpful That's a cool idea. Uh, when it came time. So she was able to, to tell us that. I, and I think that there would be other opportunities to maybe lessen the friction with those siblings because it's not you deciding what happens with it. Um, it's they're helping decide. They're making some decisions, too.
1: And I suspect you had interesting conversations with your dad.
4: Yes, I did. Um, But you're right. Both of you are right in the sense that um, at some point you need to decide. And for us, Carol, it became that once we had him in our home, there was you know we had to get rid of the rest of the stuff and there was a lot of stuff remaining and so uh, my brother was still living in the home so I told him look you need to get out because we need to sell the home so he took a lot of stuff with him which uh, you know I, I was okay with that I don't know how my sister was but he took a lot of stuff of our parents with him which meant less stuff for me to go through And then I told my sister, come and get what you need to get, and she took stuff, and then the rest we did as an estate sale for his. But, you know, the estate sale with his stuff, you know, our parents value the things more than they're really worth. The estate sale, unfortunately, just yielded several thousand dollars. And um, the other things we had to donate, and I'm sure the other things that we donated were of far greater value, like several Persian rugs, even. But what could we do? You know, the siblings, we were not getting along. But I agree with you, Carol, about what you did with your grandma is to, and that's what I advise today, is start giving away your things today, now, while you prepare your estate plan. Think about, instead of itemizing in your estate plan, You know, and and wasting lines and paying the attorney even more hours to devise that for you. Just start giving some of that stuff away now so people can enjoy it while they're alive. And that's the critical thing. Uh, The resource for people to use is actually a book that I uh, wrote a couple years ago with a co-author that went uh, into a bestseller last year. The title of that book is Stuff. Ology one oh one stuff. one oh one. Yes, get your mind out of the clutter.
2: oh get your mind out of the clutter, and 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 that's available on your website or like at Amazon.
4: Yes, and it, uh, as I said last year, it became a bestseller, uh, best-selling title, and um, it's it's out in uh, audio, so people can download it as an audio book. But it's a short book. And people can get their tips from that, and and we say get your mind out of the clutter because stuff goes beyond just the physical stuff we often think of. There's also the mental stuff that we deal with. There's the temporal stuff like we're going to be dealing with here as we run out of time shortly for the show, so we don't have much time. We've got about a
1: minute left.
4: Yeah. So, but that's that's the book I recommend, and and they can also access cool. that through the CaregiversVoice dot com.
1: All right. For those who want more, the dot com. And Brenda Vadian, as always, we appreciate you coming on and uh, enjoyed it very much. You take care.
4: Thank you. My pleasure, both okay. of you. Bye bye. Thank Thanks.
1: You. And uh, hey. You ought to see my garage.
2: I was going to say. I got a lot of stuff. Yeah, I don't want to think about the stuff. Maybe I need the book.
1: That's exactly right. Well, coming up next on Caregiver SOS on Air, we're going to bring you a great chance for Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zernial, and moi, Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in... The year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, Well Med Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on.
1: Thank you for sticking with us on Take 10. We follow each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs. With Take 10, with Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known therapist and a man who is well-known in working with caregivers as well as people who are struggling with addiction, and Carol Zerniel, our co-host on Caregiver SOS on-air. Ordinarily, we take up kind of interesting sidelight topics that will really tweak your mind, and, and this week we're tackling a really difficult and complex one. It spins out of a case in Iowa, a former state legislator in his late 70s whose wife was diagnosed with dementia. Uh, she was in a nursing home, and he would visit her, and occasionally uh, they would have intimate sexual relations. At one point, the hospital staff came to him and said, uh, we don't believe your wife is cogniz- uh, has the mental capacity uh, to consent Uh, to any kind of sexual relations, and we ask you, please, to refrain from doing so. And at uh, some point, a roommate in the room in which the wife was thought she heard the sounds of sex from the other side of the curtain, uh, reported him to the staff. He ultimately was arrested and charged uh, with sexual assault. Uh, His wife had subsequently died, and it's a very difficult case, Carol Zernil.
4: Well,
2: it is, and we should mention that the case has now concluded. He was acquitted, and he was acquitted. He was found not guilty, um, and you know, I want to
5: say by a jury of his peers, right? By right. a
2: jury of his peers.
5: Right. Which, which is this, is a hard one to ever find guilty if it wasn't a jury of, the, of his peers.
2: Would be like assisted
1: suicide with a jury of your peers. Yeah, yes. it'd be tough,
2: right? And you know, this is. We we talked about this internally among the caregiver SOS staff. This is such a tough case because obviously, um, you know, sex and the urge for sex. That's a pri- That's very primal. That Alzheimer's and dementia, um, in many cases, is not going to knock that out. Or it may actually accentuate. Some it. become
1: hypersexual.
2: Some some do. And and like I said, that that kind of an urge doesn't go away. And then you have somebody who's, um, you know, they were recently married. It, it, they were kind of still in an, I would say, a newlywed phase when all of this happened. And, and so if somebody can't tell you that, yes, they consent, um, but they're acting in a way that leads you to believe that they would like something, you know, and that, which is what he was saying, that's pretty tough. I mean, how many husbands are going to turn their wife down when she's like, honey— you know, I, I'm, I'd like to be near you. i want to be close to you.
5: Right.
1: It's tough. And, Jamie, do you run into this at all?
5: Well, we all run into this at all as clinicians. I mean, that's what really that's I really want I to point out here. This is a very, very, very not, I mean, well-known issue in terms of the world of psychology. Uh, marital rape is, is very, very consistent with what we're talking about here, and, and that's basically a sexual act committed without a person's consent. Uh, when the perpetrator um, is the individual's partner. And so this, with, this is compounded in so many ways by Alzheimer's or cognitive decline. Um, it, it really puts into a great place. Uh, I don't want it to be put into a place where we start forgiving or thinking this is all about marital rape because, you know, 28 percent, I think, of rapes are happen with intimate partners. And they need to be prosecuted, and somebody really is saying no and it's a, it's an act of rage and control this case it's compounded by the, uh, a national you know epidemic uh, called alzheimer 's that we all kind of can relate to in somewhat of a sympathetic way
1: now do you think perhaps the hospital staff over nursing staff overextended themselves and perhaps uh, walked into an area that uh, there was no reason to go into?
5: You know, it all depends on, on about the messenger here, doesn't it, Ron Carroll? Um, who was the hospital, uh, oh, excuse me, the nursing home staff? Uh, who was it? Was it a clinician? Was it a med tech? Was it a uh, um, you know a physician? Was it the attending? Was it the psychiatrist? Um, this has to you have to be very clear on boundary sort of grounds when you 're going to have a conversation like this with with anybody, and the messenger I think really really does matter because here here 's the deal if it 's part of the treatment plan and it 's going to create medical decompensation among you know with the patient, if you will with his spouse, then the physician can be extraordinarily clear and say, "No, this cannot be done, but if it was led with some ambiguity and and an empty area there of Jello, where nobody knew where anybody stood. That's a different issue.
2: Well, and and let's face it, uh, nursing homes are not comfortable with this topic uh, very much. I mean, at all. So even when Alzheimer's is inv- involved, the idea of nursing home residents and sex is something that's just now uh, being allowed and and thought about. It's like you know, once you go into the nursing home, that's it. It's game over. Um, But the residents certainly haven't ever thought that over the years. And nursing homes are finally starting to recognize the needs of the residents. But there's a lot of, um, I would say, ambiguity uh, and uncertainty and the rules may be this way and that way. So I think jello is a very good word for that.
1: And, of course, they were in a shared room. It was uh, a room in which there was another nursing home resident in the adjoining bed with a curtain between them. Right,
5: well, again, you know, there's another dynamic we don't need to get into, which is a whole other show. But let's say they didn't have the money to have a, a private room. Would any of this matter?
2: Right. Well, um, or, or there it, wasn't a private room available to them in the facility. I mean, nobody offered them one.
5: Right. Or did somebody spend down to Medicaid, so now they have to have two in a room. These type of things are all questions that go into it. But I, I do really think that this is something that needs to have our continual discussion. It, it's opened up a dialogue. Um, for me, you know it, it did fall in that sort of gray area <clears throat> again, if it was part of the treatment plan and everybody really <clears throat> felt that this was was uh, going to be a very much a, of a challenge to to the treatment plan and to the medical well being of this man 's wife, then it was clear then then by all means, you have a court case now is that a com- uh, I believe you have a court uh, case
1: is that a conversation, Carol and Jamie that uh, goes on during admittance and talking about treatment plans where uh, one spouse is uh, certainly fine and vigorous, not suffering from dementia, clearly well, capable of uh, of sex, and the other one may have dementia and you don't really know?
5: So, so let me comment that for a second about Carol's point, because Carol brought up a great point to answer your question. Um, I think the nursing homes and assisted living are extraordinarily uncomfortable, as Carol just mentioned, in dealing with this. In fact, just for our listening audience, you know, sex does not turn off. This is the, 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 the largest group of, of sexually transmitted diseases being passed in our country is by seniors, and it is often in assisted living or even skilled nursing environments. So we, we really have to be clear that, uh, that, that this is something more commonplace among seniors than, than our audience would really like to, to, to know. So I think assisted living has a difficult time dealing with it. They have a difficult time dealing with alcohol and drug issues. Um, they have no real set policy there. In fact, they use alcohol and drugs to recruit families. Um, so these are, are, I think, are things that, as and Carol, really, who's, who's executive director or heads in the National Council of Aging and is executive director of our foundation, I think has, has a great sort of uh, chance to weigh in here and, and give us ideas of how, as a, as a gerontologist, we should start facing these issues.
2: Well, I was thinking about all of the talk that uh, recently about... Um, death and death with dignity and a person's rights and how we have to we talk about needing to have these conversations well probably even fewer people no one wants to talk about death even fewer people want to talk about their parents sex life and what that might look like when they are moving into some sort of a care facility that's probably the last thing on our minds And and
5: yes, and to that point, that's true, but bringing it back to the psychological realm, which I think we always have to bring up, which is marital rape, um, and I never want to sweep that under the the carpet, I think it's something we all have to face, Uh, and and Ron, you're very close to to this issue because of running a rape crisis center, but what we're not privy to out here in the public is whether there was those severe bruises, whether there was broken bones, whether there's injuries—well, actually, to, you know,
1: in the in the newspaper reports, there were none. Yeah, of there that. were none. Yes, there was right. no bruising. So to, yeah, yeah, it was a consensual. <laughs> the issue was consensual. Was she competent enough uh, to consent uh, to sexual relations?
5: That was the issue. Right, and then so there. And he said, "I didn't force that. myself."
1: Right. If, if, if she if, came if, on to me.
5: And how could they measure the shock, anxiety, and intense fear? You know, do they have an excellent neuropsychologist that can actually give a test to somebody with Alzheimer's and, and really see the difference of affect? So we're on such a gray uh, area here, and I think it just speaks to our society's inability here to catch up with the real-world of, of boomers and seniors, if you
4: will. All right, well, Carol
1: gets the last word.
2: So if you have a loved one that has dementia, is moving into a facility, this is something if you've got a couple, you may need to have this discussion. You may need to talk to the facility about what is allowed, not allowed, and if you have someone with Alzheimer's, getting that care plan that Jamie's talked about you know, very clear.
5: Thank you. I agree with you. I think it should totally be informed consent. And I think until we really school and educate the assisted living, skilled nursing, 55 and over residential centers on all these policies and all the boundaries around it, um, this is where it should happen. And you got the last word, Dr. Jamie.
1: That's it. Thank you. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for listening to Take 10 on 930 AM. The answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented
0: by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net and join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio for another edition of Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The answer.